So I've finished your book. I'm so excited uh, to interview you. It was really eye-opening, disheartening, uh, inspiring, you know, all of the above. Mm. And thank you for writing it and sharing it with the world. Oh, thank you. Thank you for reading it. I'm Annette, and thank you for listening to my podcast. Today, I'm excited to share inspiring individual with you, Nicole Lynn Lewis. We'll talk about her journey, about Generation Hope, and she's CEO of that, and we'll learn more about that, and about the book that she's recently written, and I got an early copy, yay me, (laughs) and I've gotten the pleasure of reading it. Nicole, thank you for being on my podcast. Thank you for having me. If you were going to give a 30-second summary of who you are right now, let's talk about that. Yeah, so I'm the founder and CEO of Generation Hope. We're a nonprofit organization that's based in D.C. We help uh, D.C. area teen parents get their college degrees while also helping their children get ready for kindergarten. And we're now launching national work to advocate for the needs of parenting college students all across the country. I'm also the author of uh, the upcoming book, Pregnant Girl. And that comes out next, early next month, correct? Yeah, it does. Well, actually, no, it comes out next week, May 4th. So um, yeah, (laughs) so it's here. It's pretty much here. (laughs) That must be really exciting for you. Yeah, it is really exciting. It's been um, a labor of love and, you know, something that I think often we see authors and we think, oh, it's an overnight, you know, thing to publish a book and bring it into the world. And it actually took a really long time for me, um, uh, 12 years, actually, to to actually bring it into the world and, and have people, you know, a literary agent who believed in it and a publishing company that believed in it. And so I'm just really excited to have it here. Well, congratulations on that and on your journey on and what you do now for so many, not just the students in D.C. area, but setting the example and uh, advocating for good public policy and practices around meeting the needs of low-income parents, students, and taking a two-generational approach, which I yeah, think is thank you. absolutely needed. So um, you don't maybe know my background, but I've done a lot of work around educational attainment and the biggest barrier to that being poverty. And so we've done a lot of work in Amarillo around the issue of poverty and really trying to remove the barriers. I'm now on the college board of Amarillo College, and we've done a lot to really try to reduce the barriers, provide resources for our students who have challenges. We don't have a specific focus on parents, but at the board meeting last night, I was asking specifically more about our parents' students, and I was told that we're getting ready to really focus on a 2 generational approach and working with the Aspen Institute recommendations as well. And I'll certainly share your recommendations, which I see are on your website. Great. That's awesome. That's exciting. So let's do a brief history of you and why you are who you are now. All of our backgrounds make up who we are. Tell the listeners just a little bit about the book because I don't want to give it all away. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I wanted to go buy it because it's it's such a great read. Thank you. Um, yeah. So you know, I I have um, lived the mission of the organization that I run today, that I founded. Um, you know, I was a teen mom. I, I got pregnant my senior year of high school, college bound, honor roll student. Um, you know, college was always a given in my family in terms of the next step after high school. 
So it was pretty devastating for, you know, our family and for me personally to, to have all of that kind of derailed by this pregnancy and, you know, started at the college of William and Mary when my daughter was a little under three months old. And, uh, it took a a lot to just get to the campus, (laughs) you you know, just, um, overcoming, um, housing insecurity, food insecurity, being in a really tumultuous relationship with my daughter's father, um, sleeping in cars, you know, all sorts of things that none of that, you know, said college. Um, it was, it was just a lot of dark days. And so just making it to a college campus as a parent was really hard and, um, being a new mom and being, a, a you know, new to college all at the same time with very few resources was really difficult and, and, you know, pretty intimidating. Um, I always say I, I step foot on campus and I look down at my feet and thought these feet don't belong here, which I think happens for so many college students. Um, and, uh, but I thought, let me put one foot in front of the other and see where it takes me and try my hardest. And that's what I did. And, um, you know, it was incredibly, incredibly hard, but that those four years taught me a lot about what needs to change in order to make it possible for for more um, parenting college students to actually make it across the graduation stage. And um, I'm really thankful, you know, for all of those difficulties and challenges, because I think it's it's made me a better person. Um, It's made me a better advocate and it led me to the work that I do today. go through some pretty challenging situations in your early life of being a pregnant teenager and then eventually giving birth. You've gone through domestic violence issues. You've certainly gone through food and housing insecurity. Uh, you've lived in basically some pretty scary situations and, and, and dealt with some things that I've never had to deal with. And I just want to reinforce how, how the how important it is for us to not judge individuals based on their past and their history or what they might be going through right now, but seeing the potential in individuals. And I'm sure you have a huge focus on that in Generation Hope. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of our values, our core values is acceptance. And that really speaks to the judgment and the stigma and the shame that we often put on teen parents in particular, but I think also students who have different lived experiences than quote unquote, the traditional kind of college journey, right? And, um, you know, for us, it's really, we wanna focus on exactly what you said, which is the incredible potential of each of our students, the future that is in front of them. And, um, you know, and not looking at their, their experiences or their decisions as, um, you know, reasons to withhold resources or reasons to question their ability to get to the next step. Um, for us, we think that they bring incredible assets to our organization. Um, they inspire us every day. I think certainly even within this pandemic, like we have been blown away uh, by the incredible, you know, persistence and determination of our students. And so that's a core value of Generation Hope is, is being non-judgmental, accepting our students for who they are and really meeting them where they are to get them to the next stage in life. So let's talk about Generation Hope just a little bit. How many students do you serve? 
So in a given year, we typically serve about 100 uh, teen parents who are attending 20 different two and four year schools across the DC region. Uh, we actually made a decision this year, our board as a part of our new strategic plan to grow that number. Um, you know, the, the need is significant. And we also know that coming out of COVID, it's gonna be even more significant. So we're actually in the process now of recruiting our largest class ever as an organization and our- yeah, we're trying really hard with, you know, with everything being shut down with COVID, it's been more difficult to get in front of students and say, hey, you know, apply to our program. But we've been very creative. We're on Instagram. We're, you know, if we have to go on TikTok, we'll do what we have to do. And uh, but yes, in a given year, we, we uh, typically serve about 100. We'll go to 125 next year. Well, and if you look at the the ripple effects of serving those students and creating success for them. I mean, you're talking thousands per year of, of individuals really impacted. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we know their children are impacted. Um, and so, you know, excited to hear that you all are leaning into this two gen work, um, you know, but then, like you said, the legacies of education that are being created in this, in these families for generations to come. I mean, that's really what, what we see. This is, long-standing impact that that we're helping to create in these families. Well, yours is a perfect example of how that has changed. You being successful has changed the trajectory for your children. So, yeah. And, and you have four children, correct? I have four, and I have one on the way. I'm, I'm five weeks <gasps> away from my due date. <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah. The ages of your kids now. So my oldest, who who was in college with me, essentially, is about to be 22. And she's about to graduate from her own college, which it's just come full circle for us. It's just so wonderful. exciting. Yeah. Um, then we have an 11-year-old who will be 12 in a couple months. And so she's in sixth grade. We have two boys, um, four and two, who are, are t- tornado one and tornado two, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> And we have another boy on the way. So um, we'll just have to continue to, to, you know, safe proof our entire house. (laughs) I raised three boys and it's so different when I'm around little girls and I'm like, they're so different. Yes, they are. They are. Well, that's great. And congratulations. And and what a wonderful family experience for for all the kids to share and to share in your success as well. So that's great. Okay, so Generation Hope. Okay, so students apply to participate, correct? Yes. Yep. So we have an application cycle that opens uh, every December and closes about April, May of every year. And um, and we try to make our application as least cumbersome as possible, knowing that, you know, they don't have a lot of time and, and we only want to gather the information that we need. Um, we do a in-person interview with each of our applicants. And the reason for that is because we want to make sure that we're getting a sense of who they are beyond just the paper application. You know, sometimes you have a dip in your GPA because of a pregnancy or because you lost your housing that, you know, that month, or there's a lot of different things that it's really hard to tell, you know, from a traditional application. So we want to be in conversation with our applicants and really learn their journeys, learn their stories. And um, at the same time, we're recruiting mentors. So mentoring is a big, big part of our programming. And so we're recruiting folks who are, you know, caring individuals in the community who are really going to be cheerleaders for our students. And, um, and uh, those conversations are happening at the same time. And, and we've kind of perfected, if you will, that that process over the course of our 11 years, um, or at least enhanced it and honed it. 
One of the things that at Amarillo College we've done some years back is look at who our students really are and not really assume there's students we thought we had, we used to have, maybe we even hoped we had, but look at the realities that our students are facing. And for our student population, some of whom are older adult students and parents, as well as the 18-year-old coming straight out of high school, at first it was kind of a challenge, I think, for some of our faculty and staff to recognize the realities that our students went through and faced. And we had prejudged, you know, as we may all do at some point, why they weren't being successful in school. But when we did some focus groups, none of it was academic. It was Mm -hmm. all life, life happening to these students. Talk about some of the barriers that life might throw in the way of a college student. Yeah. So um, I think that's spot on. I mean, one, I think it's great that you all are doing that work too. I think um, what you found is exactly what we see every day at Generation Hope is is life, right? Um, Life interruptions. And and so we have these, this holistic programming that really tries to help mitigate those things as much as possible. The biggest challenges that we see for, for parenting college students are housing, you know, housing disruptions, insecurity, um, childcare is huge. Um, you know, if you don't have affordable childcare or reliable childcare, you're not going to go to class. I mean, that's just the reality of it. Um, and we all know that that the childcare sector has long had you know many many challenges, and I think COVID has just laid those to bear. Domestic violence is huge for our population. Um, we see really high rates of domestic violence, and and those situations can make it, make it extremely difficult to show up in a college classroom to do your best work. And then lastly, mental health is is something that we see as um, an ongoing challenge for for all college students. Like, you know, I think it's that we need to normalize that more and more and just talk about the fact that any college student, you know, might have a need for mental health supports, but particularly for our population where you're under a lot of stress, you're trying to connect the dots, you're trying to be a parent, you're working, you're going to school. Um, Mental health has been a really significant challenge for for many of our students. And that's only increased with the COVID crisis. Exactly. Yeah. We saw about a 30% increase from our students in terms of the number of sessions they requested with our mental health counselor on staff. So um, it has definitely heightened the need for sure. So you and I have crossed paths because we both serve on the Hope Center Advisory Board. Yeah. Uh, run by Dr. Sarah Goldercrob. I got to watch part of your conversation last night. I had a board meeting, so I couldn't watch it all uh, until later and had meetings this morning. So I'll go back <laughs> and watch it and I'll, I'll try to put a link to that as well. Yeah, that would be great. And stuff as well. Link all of your information. Sarah's focus is food and housing insecure college students. And I think a lot of people have no clue the level of food and housing insecurity in our college students. We went over our Hope Center data just kind of at a high level last night. And of course, the numbers have increased since the last survey. 
heavily because of COVID, or at least partly because of COVID. What would you say to community colleges and universities who aren't looking at the data, who don't really have a grasp on this, and who don't really see this in their students as a reality? Now, you went to William & Mary. That's premier institution. And you talk about how they didn't think, you know, where you were at that time was anything that existed on their campus. So what do you say to those institutions who really kind of have blinders on? Yeah. And, and, you know, I've had conversations with, with folks from those institutions uh, (laughs) where they'll say, that's great what you're doing, but like, that's not really a problem for us here. And what I would say is there are parenting college students on your campus. There are hungry students on your campus. Uh, There are homeless students on your campus. And I think my, the fact that I was at William and Mary and was not ever thought of and, you know, wasn't on the radar of the administration, I think is, is evidence of the fact that it doesn't matter what kind of institution you run, that you do have students that uh, are in need. And I think really important for people to understand that when a student fails, it's a failure of the institution. As it's not, we, we look at it as that student's issue. And I think looking at you know the numbers, looking at the data is critically important because it tells us a story. And if you're seeing that there are students that are falling through the cracks, we have to figure out why they're falling through the cracks and not make assumptions, as you said earlier, about who they are, what their capabilities are, their journeys, all of that. And I think so many institutions are flying blind right now. I mean, one big thing under the umbrella of student parents is that most institutions are not tracking parenting status of their students, which means at any given time, you have no idea who on your campus is parenting. And I can tell you from a food insecurity standpoint, and I know this from experience, if you uh, are a parent and you, there's not enough food, you, you feed your child first, you feed your child first. And that means you don't, you go without food. And there were many days where I went without food because I I had to make sure my daughter had what she needed. And so uh, it's really important that we understand who we're serving, who's on our campus, what their experiences are, and that we're setting up environments where they trust us right? They trust us with that information um, because that's a huge piece of it. And and right now we know that many, many parenting students are not comfortable even disclosing that they're a caregiver and that's a problem. So the FAFSA doesn't ask if you're a parent. It does ask if you have dependents, I believe, but it doesn't necessarily sequester out you're a parent. So just through surveys, student surveys, is that what you recommend to find out your student population of parents? Yeah, there's a a couple different ways. And and FAFSA is certainly a way to get the work started, right? Like I would want people to at least start with FAFSA. Uh, The trouble with FAFSA is that it doesn't count students, for example, who don't complete it. And we know that there are many students who aren't completing FAFSA and who might have dependents and might be parents. But we're seeing really wonderful kind of practices coming out of different institutions. Monroe Community College has a wonderful uh, system where they're requiring students to disclose whether or not they have a dependent when they go to register for classes. And that's really important because, you know, it requires you, if you want to take the class, you kind of have to tell us whether or not you're a parent. 
and not in a creepy way, but in a way for us to really understand, give us a sense of the data, which is really crucial and critical. Obviously, other surveys are really important, but I think what I love about that model is the fact that I, as a student parent, if I see a survey pop up that isn't attached to a registration, I can opt out, right? I don't have to take it. And then two, um, I may not be comfortable still disclosing. And there's still some of that involved in the other model, but but I think to the degree that we can attach it to things that we know students need to access, I think we increase response rates. And I think the other critical piece is really making sure that this environment is one in which you are comfortable disclosing, whether it's attached to registration or it's not. Um, and that's the other piece that we've got, got a lot of work to do. One of the big challenges that we've just not completely cracked is the child care issue. Do you have examples of colleges and institutions which have cracked that challenge? Yeah, I mean, I think for the most part, most colleges uh, don't have child care solutions for their students. I think I just saw a statistic come out less than 20% of colleges across the country have child care solutions. And, and yet we know that it's one of the biggest barriers to completion for students who are, who are parents. What I do find encouraging is more funding for programs like C Campus, which is a federal grant program that uh, provides funding to colleges and universities across the country for them to create these affordable child care solutions on their campus. We're seeing more investments being made in, in those types of programs. The other thing that I think is something for institutions to explore is, you know, it may not need to be a brick and mortar child care center on your campus. Um, something that we do at Generation Hope is we help our students identify high quality child care in their own communities, and then we give them stipends to access that child care. And so that's not another model for colleges and universities to really think about, is there um, funding that you can provide to parenting students? that allows them to go and identify convenient, high-quality childcare solutions in their neighborhoods um, that will allow them to continue to go to school. So I think it's an opportunity for us to be creative in, in how we think about those child care solutions. And build some really good partnerships along the way. Exactly, right. There are a lot of great organizations and providers in communities that I think would love to be able to partner with higher ed institutions on this. Talk about how Generation Hope is funded and also share the news, good news that you just recently got about an exciting award. I think I saw this on Twitter. So. Yeah. So we're funded um, through kind of the traditional uh, streams of, of nonprofit organizations. Um, foundations are a big kind of source of funding for us. So we're constantly churning out those grant proposals and uh, meeting with our foundation partners, individuals. Uh, so, you know, donations from, you know, individuals who are passionate about education and families and the work that we're doing there, we're, we receive support from that. And then companies are also, uh, you know, kind of a growing stream for us, partnering with businesses on the work that we do. And one of the things that we started in the last few years was our career readiness program. And we recognize that it's one thing to help our students get their college degree, but it's another thing to make sure that they move into these family sustaining jobs. We had these amazing companies that were 
in our network, we had an opportunity to really intentionally partner with them to create paid internships, to create some pipelines to employment for our students. And so we're excited about that work and that's growing more and more. I was completely overwhelmed to receive or be named a luminary uh, for the inaugural class of luminaries with the 1954 project, which is the project of the Cleveland Avenue Foundation for Education and Don and Liz Thompson, uh, who are philanthropists out of Chicago and who are really passionate about addressing racial disparities in education, particularly for Black students. But understanding that creating these solutions creates more support for all students, Black, Brown, you know, whatever color you are, right? And so they uh, basically went about identifying uh, Black education leaders across the country who are advancing creative solutions to address these disparities. And one of the areas was economic mobility. And, and uh, I got the call for a $1 million investment over three years in our work and was completely overwhelmed. <laughs> just completely overwhelmed. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. That's exciting. Very. Um, Let's talk about the racial disparities in some of the policies, practices, and expectations at colleges. I mean, you've certainly faced many, many of those challenges. Do you mind sharing with listeners what some of those might be? Yeah. I mean, I think we have to just be honest about the fact that higher ed wasn't designed for students of color. Like, let's just name it and, you know, put it out there. Um, And uh, so there are so many um, challenges and hurdles for students of color to get into college, just the access piece of it, get to the college campus, and then certainly to make it to the graduation stage. When you're a parent, it layers on another level of difficulty um, for you as a student. And so we're seeing that, you know, these institutions are not designed for students of color. They're not designed for you as a student parent. And in the conversation I had with Sarah the other day, you know, we were talking about the fact that there's all of these conditional supports out there, right? There are these policies that provide some support, but it's conditional and it's conditional on so many levels and so many things. And Sarah talks a lot about gay keeping. And that's what's really going on in our policies. And also even in our policies on college campuses, a lot of it is about gatekeeping and and keeping resources away from the students who need it. And so I think there's an opportunity for us working in higher ed to figure out how do we flip this on its head? How do we identify these processes and these policies that are really making it unnecessarily difficult, particularly for Black and Brown students, and to really challenge these notions of what is what needs to be in place versus what can we change. And I think there's a lot that we can change when we start to think differently about things. I like that your book is divided into the kind of sections that it is around around pregnancy. I think this yeah. will speak to any mom, certainly. The first section is on expecting and then the urge to push and then crowning. And certainly you reflect your life in those categories very well. And I thought that was a very creative approach to, since the focus of the book is pregnant girl, you know, yes. I mean, the title. <laughs> and what policies do we as policymakers and higher level policymakers, obviously, than a college regent. What are some of the policies we might look at, reconsider to improve the status for parenting students? Yeah. 
I mean, um, one big one is is free college, right? I think that's a real opportunity for us to remove barriers. Uh, college affordability is huge for parenting students, being able to you know, provide for your family, you're working, often you're less resourced. And so removing that significant barrier to a post-secondary credential is huge. Also student loan forgiveness. This is less about getting them into college, but it's more about making sure they have quality of life, right? Like after they, they get through college, if they even get through college, you know, black student parents have the highest amounts of student debt higher than any other group. They're at the epicenter of the student loan crisis. Crisis, this national conversation we're having about student debt doesn't name that and doesn't really talk about who's at the center of it. But student loan forgiveness would be huge. Uh, we know so many student parents don't make it to the graduation stage. So when you're shouldering tremendous amounts of student debt, you don't have a post-secondary credential to show for it. Life is extremely difficult. It's extremely difficult for you and for your children. And then we also know even after you graduate, you get a credential. It's hard to keep food on the table, all of that when you're shouldering a tremendous amount of student debt. I think affordable housing, affordable childcare, those are all things that are really, really important for parenting students. How do we create solutions to make it easier for them to provide for their families and to, to take some of the stress of connecting all of those dots off of their shoulders? There's a ton of things that need to be in place or need to be strengthened. Um, we're working on our policy and advocacy agenda at Generation Hope. And I often tell people if I could sum it up with two things, it would be Let's make it easier for people to move out of poverty and easier for people to overcome racial oppression. <laughs> if we could look at our policies at every level through those, you know, through that lens and with those guiding stars, the world would look a lot different and we would see more parenting students completing. that they need to learn from you. Oh, and by the way, we have free college in Amarillo for graduates of our largest school district here. Awesome. They can go to Amarillo College for 60 hours for free. That's amazing. Books and tuition. It's yes. a five-way partnership. We hope to expand it, but the original launch was we can't expand it until we have a test, period. Yeah, period. So, that's awesome. Good for you yeah. all. I mean, you guys are doing such fantastic work. I think folks have so much that that they can learn from you all and and would love to see other institutions, you know, following suit. So what else do our listeners need to learn from you? I think a big thing that I hope people take away from this is that a lot of what we've been taught about teen pregnancy is just inaccurate and it really contributes to the stigma and the and the the damaging kind of response that we have to young families. I mean, one of the things that I thought was really interesting when researching for the book was that when I got pregnant in the 90s, teen pregnancy was actually on the decline and that the highest rates were during the 1950s. And yet everything that I was hearing, the messaging was that it was this heightened crisis. And, you know, a lot of that was wrapped up in political agendas and wanting to shape policies in such a way that, again, we could do this gatekeeping and this kind of keeping resources from folks who needed it. And so I hope that people will think differently about teen pregnancy, teen parenting, and also think about what role can they play? What role can we all play in our daily lives to make sure that these families can thrive? 
And your focus is on college students. But yes. what would you say to high school teachers who have students who are facing these challenges? I mean, I think the K through 12 system similarly has work to do in making sure that they're supporting this population. We hear horror stories from our students who have been uh, marginalized, pushed out of classrooms, pushed out of schools, who've been told, you know, college is not an option, who've been told to give up, you know, high school isn't an option any longer. And so they're is a ton of work to be done at the K through 12 level to better understand what these students need and the ways in which uh, we're pushing them to the fringes, even in K through 12, and the larger implications that that can have on a young person's life. If, if you're told, hey, you know, you shouldn't show up to class anymore because you're pregnant and we don't want the other students to see you, which happens, then how do you, how does that young person get their their GED or their high school diploma, certainly college is off the table at that point. So there's a lot of work I think to do in helping people understand this population, helping people to understand the impacts of their words and of their actions and how do we set them up for success even at the K through 12 level. Thank you so much, Nicole. You're an inspiration, the work that you do now, the challenges that you've faced and overcome are a tribute to your tenacity and your wisdom and just commitment to education because you understand how important it was for you and for your children. I appreciate you being on my podcast today and thank you for listening to Annette on Education. <music>